Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Hello and welcome to The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have just me, Jonathan Stark. So since it's just me today, I thought I would take the opportunity to answer a bunch of questions, a bunch of questions I've received about shutting down my old mobile site at jonathanstark.com and replacing it with the content from expensiveproblem.com. So if you've been listening to the show for a long time, you probably know I've been running two businesses, one sort of mobile strategy consulting at jonathanstark.com and business coaching over at Expensive Problem. So now I'm combining those websites into just Expensive Problem. It's kind of hard to explain. Uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm, I now have one website, jonathanstark.com, and that's where my business coaching stuff is. So a bunch of people were asking questions like, uh, did you decide to shut down your mobile consulting business or does it live on a new domain somewhere? And the answer is I closed the doors on the mobile business. I have two current clients that I love and are great and I'm going to continue to work with them, but I'm not taking on any new ones. So I consider it that I've closed the doors on my mobile business. A number of people asked whether or not this was because I had picked credit unions as a vertical uh, maybe about a year ago. And, you know, a typical question would be, oh, I guess credit unions weren't such a good choice to work with. And the reality is the credit unions are fine, uh, but in the mobile space, they're very late adopters. I mean, it, really anybody who hasn't gone mobile by now probably doesn't want to, which means that uh, my horizontal expertise in mobile consulting is kind of like pulling teeth for them. They don't really want to do it. If they wanted to do it, they would have done it already. Which begs the question, why don't I just pick a different vertical? And really, I think the problem's a little deeper than that. So e even though I picked a vertical market, credit unions, and I was focusing on them, I was still fundamentally selling a horizontal service, which is mobile strategy. Now that mobile's at the top of the ad adoption S-curve, all the really juicy early adopter clients are all set. You know, they went mobile five years ago. They went all in on mobile five years ago, and all of the exciting projects are basically gone. So I'm pretty sure that I would have had the same result if I picked any other vertical that hadn't yet adopted mobile. A lot of people wrote in to say, wow, that must have been a really hard decision. And really the short answer is that it was a long decision, but it wasn't really a hard one. I'd seen the writing on the wall with mobile for a few years. The leads, I was getting fewer leads. The sales cycle was longer. You know, people were deliberating more and more about whether or not they really needed to hire me. 
Um, the client's perceived value is just lower because it's something that they they really don't want to do. They're getting dragged into it. They see it like an IT project more than some sort of opportunity for growth. And really, most of all, my interest in mobile has really gone down. The gold rush in mobile, all the excitement, it's basically over. Mobile is taken for granted. It's a cost of doing business now. It's not as much fun. And at the same time, I'm drowning in really fun ideas to do in my business coaching work. I've got tons of leads there. I've got students who are getting good results. Uh, if, and if I had more uh, mental bandwidth, I could help even more people, which would be super fun. So the right decision was pretty obvious. So it wasn't a hard decision. Uh, it was just more a question of when I was going to do it. And then, you know, before I made the announcement, a couple of days before I, I had made the announcement, a good friend of mine nominated me to do a TEDx talk about my pricing work. And I was petrified that the organizers were, would do what most people do, which is Google my name and end up at jonathanstark.com instead of expensiveproblem.com. And then they'd be looking at this mobile consulting for credit unions thing. And they'd be like, what, what does this have to do with the theme of the conference, which happened to be, uh, happens to be about time. So that was basically the straw that broke the camel's back. So that's really the short answer, but there's a longer answer that I think might be helpful for listeners of the freelancer show. I know it was very helpful for people on my list. I got tons and tons of feedback from this. Uh, so I'll, I'll actually just read down the message that I sent out to people and um, hopefully I won't bore you to tears. All right. So back when Steve Jobs announced the iPhone in 2007, uh, I immediately knew that mobile was going to be the new focus of my software business. At the time, I'd been doing web development for about three years and there were some smartphones on the market back then, you know, like, God, I can't even remember, like there was like a Windows ME or I can't even remember Palm Pilots and things like that. But they were all terrible at when rendering web content, if they could even do it at all. So I'd been dying for a mobile platform that ran a real grown up web browser. And for me, when I saw the iPhone, it was low at first sight. Pretty soon after that, I crossed paths with a really talented designer named David Kaneda, who was working on an open source JavaScript library called JQ Touch. And JQ Touch made it easier for web developers like me to build native-like interfaces using just HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. It was kind of like a, a framework that would let you make web apps that kind of looked like the original Apple apps on the iPhone, like the settings app and iTunes and that kind of thing, like lots of lists and sliding animations and all that. So David was and still is an amazing designer, but he needed some help with the geekier sort of behind the scenes plumbing stuff in the code. And that was my forte. So I joined him as the first contributor on the project. It was an open source project. And later as the maintainer of the repo when David and JQ Touch were acquired by Sencha Touch. Now, around that same time that David and I were hacking on JQ Touch, version one of PhoneGap was released by a Vancouver-based web shop called Natobi. And with PhoneGap, the Natobi team did an amazing job tackling a big problem that David and I just couldn't solve with JQ Touch alone, which was specifically how to get access to the stuff on the phone that the browser was not allowed to get access to. So with PhoneGap, you could take a web app that you built with JQ Touch or any other web-based technology and just wrap it in PhoneGap to create what everybody at the time called a hybrid app. It was half web and half native. So what that meant was you could create a web app that could then access the camera and the photo library and use geolocation, accelerometer data, receive push notifications and all that fun stuff. 
course, every web devs will know that browsers can do all those things now, but at the time, none of those features were available in a browser. PhoneGap turned out to be so successful that both PhoneGap and Natobi were acquired by Adobe and the source code was spun out as an open source project called Apache Cordova. Anyway, so Dave Canada and Brian LaRue, who was uh, one of the principals at Natobi, uh, and I often found ourselves teamed up online and at conferences, sort of extolling the virtues of the open web and providing tools to web developers to help escape the walled garden of the mobile platform app stores. All three of us seemed to be on the conference circuit nonstop, and we were part of a, a crowd of people who was tapping into something really big. There was like this tidal wave happening, and we were part of this group of people who were right at the bleeding edge. And we could feel we were in a position to change how it was going to play out, even if, even if only a little bit. But it felt like we were changing the course of how this was going to happen. So fast forward to 2010, and um, I wrote a, a book for O'Reilly that covered uh, JQ Touch and PhoneGap. And it was super successful. It was The timing was just perfect. I really lucked out. And over time, it was translated into seven languages, it was sold all over the world. And in support of the book, I spoke at conferences all over the place. At one point, I gave a talk at South by Southwest to a room of thousands of people that ended up being voted the number one talk of the entire conference. Another time I presented a talk in Tokyo to a huge crowd who only spoke Japanese. And the, the way they could understand me was with the help of this like team of translators broadcasting from glass booths at the back of the room. It was like the UN. During one period of time, I traveled with my wife and eight-month-old son to New York, Atlanta, Toronto, and Iceland in like one month. It was like six weeks or so, and we, we were home, I think, for like three days. When you start a new project, typically you need things like a domain name, hosting, things like that. When I choose hosting, I pick mine for the options it gives. I like to know what I'm getting and set things up just how I like them. This is why, for your projects, you should check out Linode. Linode servers feature native SSD storage, a 40 gigabyte network, and Intel E5 processors. That's all the power you need to run VMs under full control or Docker containers, who doesn't love that, encrypted disks, and VPNs. Plus, they have 10 data centers across the world and add-ons like backups, node balancer, and Longview to help you control your server costs. They also offer block storage for your static files, and you can get started with a $20 credit if you use the code FREELANCERSHOW2018. That credit is good for four months on their one gigabyte server. That's a lot of time to try them out and see if they're the right fit for you. That code again is Freelancer Show 2018. Also, if you're interested in working for Linode, they're hiring. Head to linode.com slash careers to see their available positions. So back at this time when I was traveling around like that, I mean, the crowd of people that I was hanging out with and like having dinner and, and, and fighting with and collaborating with and commiserating with were people like Jeff Zeldman and John Resig and Paul Boag, Simon Collison, Mike Montero, it's, I, Paul Irish, Luke W. John, it's, there's a million people, a huge list of brilliant and amazing people who were changing the course of the way the web was going to be in this new smartphone platform. I'll stop there because it feels like I'm bragging a little bit. Maybe I am, but uh, it, it's important. You need to know that I, I've, I was part of a tribe that was charting a course through this like strange mobile computing landscape. It really felt I don't know. It's hard to describe. It just felt like we were helping to define the new culture of web developers. You know, I was just a tiny piece of that, but, but as a group, it, it had this feeling, it had that, it just felt like that. It's hard to describe. 
So it was a super, super exciting time. You could feel this, this feeling. We were at, felt like we were at the top of our game. What we were doing really mattered. We're having this big impact on the future of the web. And the important part is it felt like it was never going to end. We were on a high, or at least I was, I was on a high that I didn't realize was a high. So for the next few years, clients were just magically appearing. I worked on a bunch of really cool cutting edge mobile stuff for huge brands like Nokia, Staples, Time, Entertainment Weekly, you name it. You know, Cisco, TechCrunch, Panera, T-Mobile. There's just a million of them. Seemed like every other week I was getting contacted by, you know, some Fortune 500 company that wanted to hire me. I'd just get these emails or somebody would grab me when I was walking off the stage at a conference. And that was great uh, until things changed, <laughs> as things will do. So in late 2012, I noticed I hadn't really gotten any leads in a while. So I, was pro- I don't know for sure. I assume I was finishing up some project and then I was like, huh, I haven't gotten any leads in a while. And the few leads that I would get were not really that big. I wouldn't have even considered them leads previously. The budgets for mobile consulting were just drying up and the tone of the conversations was changing. At the time, I was too clueless about business to recognize it, but mobile was crossing the chasm in the, the Jeffrey Moore crossing the chasm sense uh, from early adopters to the mass market. So all of my cool, exciting clients who were really trying to be cutting edge were kind of done. And, you know, we're getting to the other side, the sort of early, not early adopters, but the people right on the other side of the chasm that are like, eh, kind of like, kind of a tough sell. They're skeptical. So by, you know, so that went on for a couple of years and started to improve by 2014, but it was definitely not back to the feeding frenzy levels like pre-2012. Something had definitely changed and it felt like it had changed for good, like a bubble had burst. So then by 2017, a decade after the introduction of the iPhone, basically 10 years later, mobile had become the dominant computing platform on planet Earth. It had eclipsed desktop in every meaningful way. It was totally mainstream. All the big players like, you know, in the consulting space, like Deloitte, Accenture, IBM, SAP, all those, they were offering mobile products and services to, you know, like make work projects where they'd send an army of, of, consultants into a company to build them through the nose by the hour, you know, 40, 40 people billing 200 bucks an hour. And that was just, that was the way the game was, uh, that, that was the way the, big, the game became. So there's still money in mobile, but it's just a different kind of money, not the kind of money I want. It's become a cost of doing business and people aren't really viewing it as an opportunity for growth at this point. All the early adopters, my ideal clients, have moved on to things like blockchain and augmented reality and artificial intelligence. So just to put it simply, mobile is just not cutting edge anymore. It's kind of boring. Now, fortunately for me, as mobile was going mainstream and becoming less interesting to me, I sort of organically started turning my attention to a side interest that I'd had for a long time, which was ditching hourly billing. So you've probably heard me tell this story a million times, but uh, back in 2005, while I was managing a boutique dev shop, I basically had an epiphany with like this violent clarity. I recognized a truth that had kind of been staring me in the face for years, but I just didn't recognize, which is that hourly billing is nuts. Now, once I had this vision, I I just had to go out on my own. So I (laughs) grabbed a copy of Value-Based Fees by Alan Weiss, and I set out to build a solo consultancy. And I knew that I was going to scale that up by... Uh, Not by hiring junior developers and marking up their time, but instead by delivering more value to bigger clients and pricing my services accordingly. So in this, in this 
effort, I was really successful. So the period of time when I was landing these huge Fortune 500 clients left and right, I was value pricing that work. And it was extremely profitable to me, but also to them. So my colleagues who were still stuck in the land of timesheets would keep in touch with me and they'd ask how it was going and what tips and tricks could I offer? And is there anything I could do to help them out and kind of, kind of get away from this timesheet mentality? And so I had to help them out as well as I could by answering questions via email and stuff and doing podcast interviews and speaking at meetups and every once in a while I'd blog, but uh, nothing serious and those sorts of things. So that was, you know, that was from 2006 to 2009. And at that point I started coaching my first student and I, I don't remember exactly how it happened, honestly, but if I remember correctly, a colleague who had been, uh, had been asking me a lot of questions over email and he just started paying me to coach him. I don't know if he suggested it or maybe I did. I really don't remember, but it did feel like a natural progression at the time. Like I, re I recall that it was very natural. So I did it one or two more of these sort of ad hoc coaching engagements over the next couple of years, but it really wasn't anything serious or very steady. Uh, at the time I was still busy with mobile consulting and coaching was more of an experiment than anything else. So in 2014, after I noticed something was changing in the mobile world, I decided to start taking coaching more seriously. So I added a coaching service to jonathanstark.com and I signed up what I considered to be my first real coaching student. And this went really well and I signed up a couple more, but I started to have a problem because now that I had both mobile consulting services and business coaching services on the same website, it was super awkward. I was trying to serve two different audiences with the same marketing site and all it did was confuse people. It was super weird. So in 2015, I bought expensiveproblem.com and I moved all of that coaching content over there. And this solved my problem for a little while, but as I started to attract more and more people to my pricing work, folks would Google my name and end up on the wrong site. So, you know, I would get people signing up for my mobile mailing list who expected to receive information about ditching hourly billing and were confused when they would receive, you know, messages about, you know, like the latest updates in mobile browser technology and, you know, vice versa, the same, you know, the other things would happen where, um, somebody who's looking for mobile consulting work would Google my name and get a bunch of expensive problem business coaching results in their, in their Google search results. And it was just weird. So then in 2016, I published the first, first edition of hourly billing is nuts. And the problem got a way worse. I was guesting on podcasts a lot to promote the book, which caused a lot of people to Google my name and ended up on the wrong site. And at some point in 2017, it became clear to me that I'd become more well-known for my pricing work than for my mobile work. So the message was spreading and, and that's great, but my name was attached to it and that's good too, but it created this disconnect. It's really hard to be like two different people online. Like if you're gonna have your name associated with two different things, it's really hard. So yeah. When my friend nominated me to do a TEDx talk about my pricing work, things came to a head. I was super excited about the opportunity, but I was just terrified that the organizers were going to end up on the wrong site. They were going to Google my name. They were going to go to jonathanstark.com and not find the content at expensiveproblem.com, which is the stuff I wanted them to see. And so that was it for me. So that happened on a Thursday and I slept on it over the weekend. And then by Monday, there was no question in my mind. I just went, updated the DNS records for jonathanstark.com to point to expensive, the expensive problem server and set up 301 redirects for everything at expensiveproblem.com. And it's, so here's the wild thing. The sense of relief was instant. From 2015 to now, which as I'm recording this, it's like 2018, I've been feeling increasingly schizophrenic online. 
So like, I didn't know what to write in my social media bios. And when I met people in real life, I'd stumble through my answer to the, what do you do question? And this especially bugged me because answering that question with clarity is a core piece of my coaching program. So it's like me not take my own advice. But the moment my DNS propagated, I had my answer. Boom, I'm a business coach. It feels great to be able to just answer that, not worry about the mobile consulting thing or trying to explain myself or having, you know, for a while I had LinkedIn was sort of my mobile consulting uh, online bio and, and uh, Twitter was more of my um, business coaching, social media presence. And that all made sense, you know, for the reasons that I'm describing here. You know, I wanted to transition the business over. It wasn't an overnight thing. I couldn't just go cold turkey off of my mobile business uh, because it's very lucrative. So, you know, it, it was a long time coming and it felt great once I did it. And I, you know, I'm sorry for the long message, but hopefully an inside look at the history and the thought processes that sort of went through my mind will be helpful to you in some way. If maybe you're facing this kind of online schizophrenia or this dichotomy between like, oh, I've got this bit, one business that has this audience and I've got this other business with another audience. So I don't know. Hopefully it wasn't totally boring. Hopefully it was helpful in some way at all. Um, but I'll leave it at that. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back with another normal episode of The Freelancer's Show next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.